All right, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Uh, we're walking through the books of First and Second Peter over the next uh, couple months, and uh, we just want to understand what Peter was writing to the believers in what's really modern-day Turkey. And we've titled this series A Living Hope, and it's really someone to look forward to. And just to kind of frame the series up for you, uh, if, you've, if you haven't been able to um, hear any of these sermons yet, uh, the way we've kind of understood First Peter is that uh, you probably remember hearing the name Nero. Anybody hear the name Nero? Raise your hand if you know Nero. Nero was kind of a crazy Caesar, right? He was the crazy Caesar that uh, he loved to build. And uh, there was a period in the mid-60s, uh, later 60s, when uh, he wanted to rebuild an entire section of the city of Rome. Uh, and so to do that, he had to destroy a large section of it. And so Nero has been charged historically with starting the great fire in Rome that burned about a quarter of the city. And so many people were furious because so many um, ancient buildings and libraries and documents and people's lives were lost in this enormous fire. You know, there wasn't a fire department that could just run over and put the fire out. Once something caught, it just spread, and so a quarter of the city was completely devastated. And in the aftermath of that devastation, Nero needed a scapegoat, and so he blamed the Christians. Now, there's a couple things about that that make it interesting. Number one, Christianity had grown to such a degree that it was scapegoated by Caesar himself. Now, that's remarkable if you consider that within 30 years of Jesus' death, Christianity had grown from a small sect in a small territory of the Roman Empire to a large enough group of people around the empire that Caesar himself would blame them for this uh, fire. The second interesting, interesting thing about Nero and his fire um, is that uh, Nero had, as he had to have a scapegoat, um, he would blame the Christians, and uh, the Christians were despised. Why he picked them was because they were so despised that they claimed that there was only one God, and that they would only worship one God. And so in Rome in that time, what made Rome such a strong empire was that as they conquered a people, they would give that people uh, a measure of autonomy. They could still worship their own gods. They could still have their own sort of religious rituals, and they could do their own thing. But they had to add to their deities. They had to add Caesar, and they had to add Rome, and they had to add all the Roman gods. And so it was a, it was a, a government that incorporated the local territories that it conquered. And that's why it became a strong empire for so many hundreds of years. But Christians were hated because um, they would walk into someone's house and it was customary in those days that you would um, maybe bow before their household god. Maybe you would say a prayer. Maybe you would light a candle. Maybe you would uh, offer some incense. Maybe you would give some money. Maybe you would, uh, in some way, you would honor their household god. Or you would honor a community. If you walked into a city, uh, you would ask somebody, um, where's the temple? And you might go by that temple if you were there on business. And you might um, participate in whatever ritual was in that community. And Christians were despised 
for many reasons, but one of them was they refused to participate in the worship of anyone or anything that wasn't Jesus or uh, Christianity. And so Peter is writing because they are being terribly persecuted at this time. Uh, Nero has blamed them publicly for destroying lives and property and people. Uh, And so as a result of that, there is an enormous persecution taking place all over the empire. So Peter fires off a letter through his amanuensis, like his secretary, a guy named Silvanus. And Silvanus is writing the letter as Peter is maybe pacing in front of them. And he's thinking, you know, I hope these believers in northern Turkey where the persecution is terrible, I hope they're doing okay. Let's write them this letter to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. They're having their property taken. They're, uh, they're having their lives um, wrecked by people uh, you know, doing hateful things to them or maybe saying things about them. And it may even have gotten physical at some point. We know when Paul was traveling as a missionary through these areas, that he would start riots and there would be fights and he would be stoned and he would be beaten. He would be uh, dragged into prison. You remember in Philippi, he was uh, beaten and put into prison by the Philippian jailer, and and he was converted to Christ. So these are the kind of things that were taking place all over the Roman Empire. And just think about if a persecution broke out in Souderton, right? And if you identified as a believer, and maybe there was a cross at your house, or maybe uh, some way to identify that you were a believer, and the people in your neighborhood would just drive by and chunk eggs at your house or something. Or, or maybe they would throw rocks through your window or bricks through your window. Or maybe they would burn something in your yard. Or maybe uh, vendors who used to do business with you no longer will do business with you because you refuse to honor their faith. It doesn't sound too far off, does it? It doesn't sound too far off the way our country is headed at sometimes that uh, we're not tolerant enough of everybody meaning we don't accept and agree with everybody. And so in this way, the believers in Turkey needed a boost. And so this is why Peter is writing the book, the letter of 1 Peter. And he starts off what we talked about over the past few weeks in this overwhelmingly positive, upbeat way that he's saying, even though you're struggling, one of the greatest things about your struggle is that you're saved. You're saved. Jesus Christ saved you. And he's affirming all the ways in which they're saved. Have you ever felt so overwhelmingly happy about something that you can't stop talking about it? Has anybody ever felt that way? Maybe it's like a product, or maybe it's a TV show, or maybe it's a car, or a technology. But in some way, you're so thrilled about something that you just can't stop talking about it. And sort of every other thing that someone says, you find a way to angle it back to your thing that you're like excited about. Has anybody ever had that where you're gushing about something? Peter has just kind of gushed about salvation Uh, through verses 3 through 9. He said, you can just kind of trace this. He said about their salvation just in the paragraph that we talked about last week. According to God's great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading 
And you're currently being protected or guarded through faith for a future salvation. That He's going to come in and rescue you and bring you to heaven. And then He's talking about your faith will endure and be purified through tests and trials and sufferings. And and through that, your faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes and you're going to be swept up into this kingdom sort of time of worship and you're going to be you know, on this winning team that God of the universe has purchased and redeemed you and though you're suffering, you're struggling, it's all going to be worth it one day. And he's pointing this great lofty picture saying your faith will endure for the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus. And then he says even though you don't even see him, you guys love him, and, and even though you still don't see him, one day you're going to be with him in glory. And so Peter is thrilled with his salvation. He can't stop talking about it. Uh, he's so excited about it. And so it's after describing that salvation in verses 3 through 9 that he goes a step further. Okay, Look at verses 10 through 12. Let's read it together. Um, I'll read it. You follow along in verses 10 through 12. He says, and concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So we're going to consider these two verses, these three verses. And we're going to ask ourselves, why is Peter gushing about salvation? And why does he have more to say? And what is it about our salvation uh, by faith through Jesus Christ, not by works, but what is it about this salvation that makes Peter so excited and makes the believers in Turkey so excited? Why are they able to find some enthusiasm through this excitement? Why is he able to find joy? Why is he able to uh, express happiness about their suffering? I don't know about you, but but if I feel suffering, if I feel persecution, uh, sometimes I don't feel so excited, right? Um, But the believers did. They cherished their salvation. So I want you to see a couple of things in this passage that we're going to talk about. Number one, I just, I'm going to tell you beforehand what we're going to talk about. I want you to see that salvation was revealed by God and predicted by Him um, and by His prophets all along the way. Throughout history, salvation in Jesus was predicted and foreseen. It was a future event. Um, the second thing I want you to see is that that salvation that was revealed, it was incredibly anticipated. Uh, people were thrilled looking forward to it. They could not wait to see how this was going to unfold. They had been picking up the clues along the way and like a mystery, like a book that you can't put down. It's like four in the morning and you're still reading and you're trying not to wake your wife up because you're so excited about what's happening. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. This salvation has been incredibly anticipated along the way. Uh, The third thing that I want you to see is the salvation was announced to you. And the way Peter frames this, it puts you at the center. Now, uh, Ryan accidentally jumped the gun and showed a slide that was supposed to be revealed later. Because I didn't tell him that it was there. But but we're going to go to this slide in a little while to show you that somehow Peter wants you to see that you are remarkably at the center of this moment of salvation. 
There's not many places in Scripture where you are the center, okay? So I want you to kind of bask in it because it's only going last to last a moment, right? You the center of the attention and the glory and all that. It just lasts a moment, and it's a brief moment, but it's, it's designed in a way to make you understand how special you are and how wonderful you are that God would save you. So let's back up and let's talk about those three things briefly. Number one, he wanted you to see that salvation was revealed by God and predicted by his prophets throughout history. You can see that really clearly in verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. By the way, yours, you, you, and you, uh, repeated four times in these three verses. Four times in three verses, you are the point uh, that he's trying to get across, that you were saved and the salvation is something that you need to cherish. So he's pointing the attention toward the believers in Turkey, uh, saying the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he, what? Predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. So this was predicted a long time ago. This was not a surprise. Uh, this didn't take God by surprise. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't a uh, oops or an accident. Or uh, There's a movement of theologians that uh, gained some popularity uh, not too long ago called open theology. And open theology is, uh, describes a, a system of belief where God is in the moment, in the time space continuum along with us and he doesn't know the future and he is experiencing the events with us as we go and he is working as best as he can to wrangle all the life events that are happening at every moment all the time in front of us and so he's just along with us open theology denies that god has this omniscient omnipresent omnipowerful outside of space and time plan and and i want you to know the scripture doesn't hold to that Uh, Many times along the way, God has predicted accurately the future because He holds the future in His hands. And so clues were dropped all along the way for salvation. You may have uh, noticed this. It's a good technique in writing in a book that maybe you've read or a TV show that you like where uh, you you see clues in the first episode or in the first few chapters. And they're really subtle. But the author might just kind of drop a hint here and there, and you'll figure out later that those clues will be revisited uh, and touched on later and in, in, um, in revealed later. My wife is the master. When we watch an episode, she'll, she'll say, oh, that guy's the killer. That guy's the one. He's the one who does it. I bet at the end you're going to find out. And she's a spoiler when we'll sit and watch a show. And I'll say, no, it's not him. There's no way it could be that guy. And she can pick up on the tiniest of clues and put it together and accurately predict how something is going to end. Well, in this way, God has been dropping clues throughout history. And the first one is Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. Where in that gospel, um, he is, Adam and Eve have just eaten the fruit right, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and as soon as they do, they're predicted uh, that they're going to die. And, uh, and so God is coming and he's doling out the punishment on the serpent. And as he's handing the serpent his punishment and his curse for tempting Adam and Eve, he says, and he meaning one singular male pronoun of the 
the woman's offspring, one born to a woman, one male singular person will crush your head as you strike his heel. Even right way back then in the garden, God is seeing forward and demonstrating forward that salvation would happen in this way. Now, I couldn't give you all these clues, uh, but there are literally dozens and dozens of clues throughout the book of the Old Testament, the books of the Old Testament, that point forward to Jesus. This past week, uh, uh, I was reading in the book of Isaiah, and he said, I have uh, engraved you on the palms of my hand because I love you, right? Now, who would have... Um, love engraved on the palms of his hands 700 years before. Grayson? Did you raise your hand? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were going to answer. Somebody had love engraved on the palms of his hands 700 years. Isaiah was writing about this. And the answer is, right, it's Jesus. He was the one who would, who would love us enough that he would die on the cross for us, that his love would be engraved on the palms of his hands. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, out uh, in the future there will be a prophet like me. Like me, there would be a prophet that will come from you. Isaiah 53, 700 years before, he, he says, there will come along a suffering servant, one who will suffer and die for the sins of your people. And so all along the way, this salvation has been predicted. But let me tell you the second part. Uh, salvation not only has been predicted by God, all the clues are there. Uh, it has also been anticipated. People were looking forward to it as they gathered these clues from Scripture. Uh, have you ever binge-watched a series? Right? Have you ever uh, started something and thought, well, I'll, just, I'll just watch one episode? Um, there was an article uh, recently called The Reason You Can't Stop Binge-Watching by Callie Holloway. And uh, she was describing a recent example of just one episode uh, that she couldn't stop watching. And she thought, well, I'll sit down and watch this one episode. She writes, more accurately, I'd planned just to watch one episode. But instead, I ended up watching five. Uh, that means that for roughly five hours, I streamed one installment after another, unable to tear myself away, even as the night wound itself into the wee hours of the morning. As a matter of fact, before the credits were done rolling on each episode, I found myself quickly clicking on the next, launching it before next Netflix's autoplay feature could even finish the 15-second countdown. And when it comes to this kind of obsessive series consumption, I'm definitely not alone. The term binge-watch, the shorthand descriptor for long periods spent watching, is so ubiquitous that Collins Dictionary declared it 2015's Word of the Year. A word that wasn't even a word is now a word that we, we can't stop waiting for something. We can't uh, stop with the anticipation. We have to get through it quickly. And the reason why that's so powerful is because we're anticipating a resolution. We want something to, uh, to be resolved in our mind. There's something that's unresolved in our heart or in our mind. We can't work it out. And so we have to get to the end of a matter quickly. Scripture says it is in the mind of man to resolve a matter, to think through an issue. That's why you, you work through things in your mind. So a lot of reasons why we have dreams is that your, your mind processes so much information. It doesn't know what to do with it all. And so as a, as a way for you to process and, and do something with all that information, your mind processes it as you sleep. Um, 
there's a sense of anticipation building in Scripture. There's so much a sense of it that, that if you got to um, first century, there was uh, about 100 different messiahs that were popping up uh, over the previous 100 years before Jesus. All these people were coming and saying, I'm the Messiah or I'm the one because there was such a large anticipation. It was a very pregnant idea. So much so that Paul said in the book of Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, that word, the fullness of time, is one Greek word, and it describes uh, when you pour water and you fill a cup so much so that it, uh, if you were to look at it level, the water level actually goes above the top of the rim. Have you noticed that? And it kind of creates this bubble effect that one more drop and it'll spill over. If you add one more single drop of water, it's over. And that's what the fullness of time means. So Paul is saying to the Galatians, when, when there wasn't a drop of time left to spare, God sent Jesus into the world. Now that's anticipation. There's this uh, wonderful story that Lou Giglio used to tell. Um, 20 years ago, I heard him tell it, and it was so amazing. He would say, um, he talked about in a college class how uh, he was in a geography class, and one of the things they were studying was this feature of the United States, Mount Rainier. And, um, and as they began to study Mount Rainier, there was something about it. Have you heard this story before? There was something about this, um, this mountain that gripped his attention. Never seen it, never been uh, to see it at all, but he began to study it, and he began to be fascinated with it, and all these explorers who had explored it, and all the features of it, and, and so um, when it came time for him to take his final exam, one of the questions on there was, um, write the distinctive features about Mount Rainier, and he got so excited that he wrote a full page worth of uh, things about Mount Rainier, and he flipped it over to the back, and he said, things that you didn't ask me, but I, I know about Mount Rainier, and he filled out a whole nother page about all these geographical details and pictures and thoughts and ideas and famous people and paintings and everything there was to know about Mount Rainier. He knew it. And there came a time in the summer where he said, uh, asked a buddy of his to go with him to see Mount Rainier. So they took a road trip. And, uh, and as they drove, he said, the anticipation, the enthusiasm was building in the car until we rounded this corner and there was a scenic turnout and we could catch a glimpse of it. He said, I stopped and I was breathless. And he said, not only was I breathless, but as we got out of the car and we came over the scenic outlook, this thing that had been in my imagination and in pictures and in books, I was now seeing face to face. He said, I couldn't speak. And he said, I began to weep. And I began to cry and I began to cry and I began to cry. And my friend sort of began to distance himself and look over at me like, is it, you okay? And uh, you know, is everything all right, buddy? And, and he said, I cried for an hour. And he said, I couldn't speak, just basking in the grandeur and the majesty of this amazing mountain that, uh, that I had studied for all this time. I couldn't get away from it. He said, not only could I not speak for an hour and I cried for an hour, but he said, for the next 24 hours, I couldn't say a word as we were driving and winding closer. And as we finally got into it, he was just so overwhelmed with the anticipation of it that seeing it was incredible. This is the anticipation, the enthusiasm, the excitement that when Little baby Jesus was presented at the temple on day eight. And you find someone like Anna from the book of Luke who said, 
My eyes have seen your salvation. Says she was a widow since she was young, and now she was 84, and she never left the temple worshiping and fasting and waiting for the Messiah. Can you imagine that being in one place, just worshiping and fasting, waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah is being brought in by his parents, and as this eight-day-old baby is being brought in, Anna sees this child and takes him in her arms and blesses and sings this wonderful song. And Simeon is a waiting person who has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. There was a whole group of people that all they did was wait and watch for the Messiah. This is their anticipation. And so Peter is trying to fill them with that sense of anticipation in this passage. And when he does, he wants them to see that now this long-awaited, this long-anticipated, this huge pregnant pause, this delivery, this message of salvation, now, Ryan, go to the next slide, it is all for you, right? This salvation was announced to you. This long-predicted salvation, this long-anticipated salvation, this precious salvation, it's now presented to you delicately, carefully, as though someone were to walk up to you in a humble way and just get on their knees and say, this gift, this wonderful gift is for you. It's for you. And, and look at the structure of how it's framed. Concern, look at the agents of this salvation that uh, I've put on the screen for you. Concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things even to which angels long to look. The angels are even standing on the side just with their hands on their heads saying, I can't believe this. Prophets were pointing forward saying, I can't believe this. How is it going to unfold? Um, the Holy Spirit was pointing forward. The sufferings of Christ were for you. It was all on behalf so that this salvation could be presented to you. You are the special center of this passage. You being the people that Peter is writing to in Rome. And because they had received the salvation, he wanted them to see that God deeply treasures you. And by extension, it extends to us that he deeply treasures you. That the salvation that was first predicted by the prophets, that was predicted by the Spirit of Christ, that Christ himself even suffered on your behalf, that it was announced to you by the prophets and by the Spirit and by the apostles, that it was all so that you could be saved. This is what Peter wants to encourage them with. Prophets were serving you. The sufferings of Christ were on your behalf. It was announced to you by people who were actually literally sent to you. The Holy Spirit was sent to be your helper. The attention and intrigue of the angels, they look on in this thing. Did you know that your salvation is the most important thing in your life? Did you know that your salvation is the most important thing in your life? 
You might say, well, I, I don't know. Maybe my family is, is more important. I, I think my family is. Um, they're the ones that I feel most affection for and most attention, most of my time, most of my money. Everything is sort of built around my family and my kids. And, or maybe for you, it's your career is the most important thing in your life. Or maybe how much uh, money that you have or how much leisure time or your hobbies. Or uh, In some ways, we have misplaced this. But, but if you clear away all that clutter... Jesus said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Did you know that the moment after you die, you will be in a new reality and only one thing will matter? Was I saved? Did I know Jesus? Was my faith in Him? Was my ladder leaning against the right building? (laughs) Did I climb and put in all this effort and did I expend all this energy and all this time and all this money and all this affection and attention to invest in something that won't matter beyond the scope of my life. And so in reality, the most important thing in your life is your salvation. All of Scripture points to this arc of redemption, that in Jesus Christ, you can be redeemed. You can be saved. And you can know that you're saved. 1 John 5, 11-13 says, This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And, and John writes this in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not something you have to wonder about. Am I saved? I don't know. There are over 20 tests in the New Testament that describe your salvation. You can literally go to the New Testament and find books. Uh, They're most concentrated in the book of 1 John. If you want to find five quick tests, you can read through the book of 1 John this afternoon, and you can find for yourself five quick tests that will help you understand if you're a believer or not. But the most important thing that you can secure in this lifetime is your salvation. Your salvation. Everything in your life will point to it. Your past, your future, all of them pivot at that moment of redemption. Paul go, or Peter goes on to say that, uh, that this was delivered to you by those who preached to you. And I want to take a minute just to highlight this verse in Romans 10 because it shows that there are mechanisms for the way people believe. There is a mechanism for the way you believed. Uh, Paul, uh, the Lord probably sent somebody to your life. Uh, a parent, a teacher, a friend, uh, someone presented the gospel to you. Now, very few of you were saved uh, as an angel descended into your bedroom and preached the gospel to you, probably. And probably very few of you who were converted to Christianity through a miraculous dream or through an angelic vision or through some other supernatural mystical means. It was probably just announced to you by somebody who loves you and who is praying for you. Someone who cared enough about you to tell you that this is what the Bible says about salvation and you can know that God loves you and He died for you. This is the way God works. It's in a very ordinary, announcing way by someone who loves you and cares for you and wants you to be saved. And so Paul wrote to the Romans, this is how people get saved. In 10.14, how are they supposed to call on the one in whom they've not believed? And how are they supposed to believe in the one of whom they've never heard? And how are they supposed to hear if someone doesn't go and speak to them? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? 
And as it is written in Scripture, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of the gospel. But not everyone has obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from, here's the mechanism, faith comes from hearing. And hearing comes through the word. Verse 18, Paul just asks it, but I ask, why have they not heard? Well, they have heard because our voices have gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through your mouth as you speak. Right? This is not complicated. The gospel is communicated through you. The gospel is communicated through you. So let's get to the application. What are we going to do with these three verses? How, what does this matter for your life today? There's a couple of points, really, just two, that I want to help you apply to your life today. The first is this. Do you treasure your salvation? Like really treasure it. Uh, Is there a sense of awe and wonder and gratitude that Jesus has saved you? That you have been redeemed? That His body was broken on the cross for you? that, that, That you treasure your salvation? If you ever uh, have been reading through Genesis this month, you read about Jacob and Esau. Esau came in from hunting and he was starving and his brother had some stew on the stove or whatever. And he asked him, hey man, give me some stew. I'm starving. I'm about to fall down. And he said, well, okay, I'll give you a bowl of stew if you give me your birthright. What is a birthright? It means his inheritance that he would be bestowed on Esau all the blessings and the rights and the privileges of all of his father's possessions and the headship of his family. And he would take over the empire that his father had amassed. And Esau said, I don't care about my birthright. I'm starving. Give me the stew. And he said, swear to me that you'll give me your birthright. And he said, you got it. Just give me the stew. Esau despised his inheritance. Well, that's a, 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 there's a way in which we can despise our salvation. We can despise our inheritance by not cherishing Jesus, the author of our salvation. You know, Jesus described the kingdom, the gospel, as uh, a guy on a journey and he cuts through a field and he trips over something and he goes back and he uncovers it and it's like treasure. There's a hoard of gold underground. And he kind of looks this way and that and he says, uh, I'm going to cover this all back up. And he runs back home, forgets his business, runs back home and quickly puts everything up for auction. House for sale, right? He sells everything that he owns. He sells his business, he sells his possessions, he sells everything, gathers all that money. He runs back to... Um, the people who own that land, maybe the community, and he says, I want to buy this plot of land. And he sells everything to buy that land because the treasure that he found on that property was amazingly valuable. This is what Jesus is saying about your salvation. Do you treasure your salvation in that way? Do you treasure your salvation? I recently went through a long period uh, where I would, travel and speak, and over the last eight years, I would go speak in different places. And and as I would grow in my relationship with the Lord, uh, more of my uh, sin and struggles would 
sort of rise to the surface. I was more aware of how sinful I am. Really more aware of it. I don't know, has anybody ever felt that way that the longer you walk with the Lord, the more light He shines on you and the more you realize what a wretch, you know, I am. Well, I went through this period for this last eight years and then I would get invited to go speak and share how God saved me. And there was this time in Cuba uh, where I was invited to speak and I had, um, had been through this spiritual battle and really struggled. And, and on the end of it, uh, I had experienced this joy of renewal. And as they asked me to come up and speak, I, I started to cry. And, uh, and as I started to cry about how God saved me, it wasn't like some like nice tears were kind of forming and gently rolling. No, it was like snot and tears and like the pulpit, I had to kind of wring it out. It was like gross. It got weird, like to the point where I was like, <laughs> like sobbing, like in a sobbing baby fetal position kind of crying to the point where the guy who led it was like, this is kind of weird. And he came up and kind of grabbed me and was trying to shoo me off the stage. It was really awkward how, how emotional I got about how Jesus, I pulled it together and kind of finished it off. But I don't know if anybody was benefited, but to this day, if you go to Muriel in this little island in Cuba on this shore, uh, kind of in the northwestern district, if you just ask, hey, have you ever heard a guy cry when he shares a story? There may be a group of people that are like, I know that guy. <laughs> he just cried his eyes out. Well, there was this period where I was just really tenderhearted thinking about my salvation. Not because it's like a dynamic testimony or because of all this. Just for the sheer fact that I'm more aware of how sinful I am. And I'm more aware of how much it costs God to save me. So I want to urge you. I want to urge you to recapture the joy of being saved. Peter had to write this to these people, how amazing it is to be saved. But I don't think it was news to them. They were joyfully, happily saying, I'm a follower of Christ and I'll take the persecution because they treasured their salvation. But the second thing I want to urge you to do or to help you do is that when you treasure your salvation, something remarkable happens in your heart. You, you treasure it enough to say, I've been changed by the gospel and now I can't stop talking about the gospel. You know, I asked you at the beginning of the sermon, have you ever been excited about something that you can't stop talking about? A product, a show, uh, something that you just can't stop talking. Salvation, when you begin to treasure it and see how amazing it is, how multifaceted, how often you can look at it in so many different ways about how amazing it is that Jesus saved us, you can't help talking about it. In 2 Kings 7, there were these four lepers who were trapped in a city. The whole city was being surrounded by Syrians And as they surrounded the whole city, they were just squeezing off the flow of food and water that could get into the city. Siege was a nasty way to go. You surround a city, you choke off all of its supply, and you just wait for the people. If you're outside of the city walls, you can hear the screams and the violence and the, the people running out of food and there's nothing left and people are hoarding and hiding and killing and hurting and all these terrible stories happen when a city is besieged. 2 Kings 7 gets to that point where four lepers say, hey man, we're going to die anyway. Because they can't even go in the city. They're at the gate. They're stuck on the edge because they're lepers. They can't even go in the city. And so they got to a point where they said, we're going to die. 
let's just go out to the camp and give ourselves up. And if they kill us, great. They're going to put us out of our misery. And if they don't kill us, but they have pity on us, great. But either way, this, this sucks, right? This is terrible. Let's just get out there. And so they go out there in 2 Kings 7. And as they go out there, they find an empty tent full of like food and stuff. And they gorge themselves. And it's got money in it, so they go and take all the money and they hide it. And then they go back to another tent and they find more food. And so they eat some more and they find more clothes and money and they go hide it with the other stash. They go into another tent. <laughs> and you get the pattern, like they're so excited. And they get to this point in this third tent. And verse 9 says, Then they looked at each other and they said to each other, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And if we keep silent and we wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come let us go and tell the good news to the king's household. I just want you to understand that salvation is to be treasured. And when you begin to treasure your salvation, to begin to treasure Jesus in that way, it begins to, see, uh, to be something that is too good for you to hold in. That regardless of the consequences, regardless of the awkwardness that you may feel in trying to share your faith, when you begin to treasure it, it begins something to be something you can't keep quiet about. Something powerful, something amazing, something that you're just not able to hold in any longer. And that's not something that we should feel guilty that we're not that. It's just something that naturally it's a byproduct of treasuring Christ, this joy in your salvation. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As we think about the joy of salvation, the treasure of salvation, that, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can have hope, that you can have life, if you're experiencing hopelessness or despair, or maybe you're, um, you're listening online and, and you don't know much about the Bible or about Jesus, but you do know that the, the decisions that you've made and the struggles that you've had, the path that you've walked so far in your life, it's really produced more pain, more struggle, more emptiness, more meaninglessness, and maybe you're on the edge. Maybe you're wondering if there's hope or if there's something that can fill that void in your life. I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you. That the salvation that began to be predicted from long ago, that was anticipated, that was brought forward at just the right time, that was announced in this very simple way, I'm announcing it to you. And that your life will sort of come to a pivot point on this moment, if this is the first time you're hearing this. Really hearing it. That Jesus loves you and died for you and that He wants you to know Him. He has purchased you and offers you the gift of life. Offers you the gift of forgiveness, of lordship, of help, of hope. And He wants you to become one of His children And in that salvation is all the treasure in the world. It's treasure enough that believers would come to a point where they long to hear more about salvation. When they could be cast into a coliseum 
and torn apart by animals and burned at the stake and crucified in weird ways. And in all these ways, people would gladly lay down their life that the gospel, the salvation message could be furthered. That's a great salvation when people are willing to die for it. And not only to die for it, but to live for it. And so I just want to offer that if you've never given your life to Christ, that today can be a new day. Today could be a day of salvation for you, whether it's in this room or somewhere else. I just want to offer this gift of salvation. As I announce it to you, you can receive it. And it could be as simple as saying, Lord, I know in my heart that I'm far from you. I know in my heart that I've sinned against you. And I also know that you died to take the punishment that I deserve for my own sins. You took it on yourself because you loved me deeply. And because of your great love, you took my punishment on the cross for me. And in response to that kind of love, I give you my life. Lord Jesus, would you save me? Would you take my life and make it yours? Would you give me hope and new life? Now, wherever you are, you can pray a prayer like that. And a simple prayer from your heart expressed to God can be the prayer of salvation that the rest of your life will point back to. The rest of your eternity will point back to. Because there's nothing more important in this life than getting your salvation right. Father, would you help us to treasure that salvation? Would you help us not to despise it like Esau, but to treasure it, to love it, to love you, and to to be so enamored with you and your grace and your mercy that we're tenderhearted about your salvation to the degree that we treasure it. Would you make it so today? In Jesus' name, amen.